0: Now, Article 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 hang together and they're about implicit and explicit faith and they're fascinating. Um, We've already mentioned this concept a little bit. It's interesting that Aquinas starts actually with, do you have to believe anything explicitly? So you you need to believe things that are above nature. God's going to teach you things that take you beyond your own natural capacities. You need to believe some truths of the truths of the natural world that are probably hard to get to. He's going to teach you. <coughs> do you need to believe anything explicitly that goes beyond just the possibilities of nature? I mean, Do you have to have anything explicit that you believe? Um, and the answer is actually, well, he goes to this passage in Hebrews 11, 6. On the contrary, it's written... He who comes to God must believe that he is and is a rewarder of him, them that seek him. Okay, now I'm not going to go into this at length, but I want you to just note that Aquinas argues in many places that it's reasonable to believe that God exists, and even non-philosophers can have some natural knowledge of God through a kind of, intu- a kind of intuitive reflection based on the world around them. Children can pray to God reasonably. He also argues in the Summa Contra Gentiles, Book 3 That the philosopher or even this ordinary human being can have some natural knowledge of providence. Now, that doesn't mean of everything, like natural knowledge of, like, the God saving the world through Christ. But that there's some kind of government. Daddy, why did Grandmama die? Well, all people die, honey. And Grandmama has a soul, and she's going to go to be with God in the next life. But, Daddy, I miss her. Okay, whatever. The point is, like, the child has some kind of natural disposition to try to think about the order of the world in light of God. Now, of course, faith is going to come and inform that and give it much more specificity, okay? But the, the fact of the matter is that... <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't dismissing the, the pastoral... <laughs> The pastoral grief of the 6 year old I'm dismissing the infantile character of my own stupid example. So whatever was towards, like, my imagination. Not towards people in grief, but I'm enjoying your thorough... Your thorough... uh, Well, I suppose you're having a sort of moment of Dominican epiphany about the Dominicans. Anyway. The pastoral skill of the Dominican theologian. All right, so anyway. No, but the point is, there's a certain ambiguity here, because Aquinas is saying... It's natural to believe that God exists and that God is provident, and that we must at least explicitly believe that God exists and that God is provident. He's also told us that many people don't really understand too well what it means to say that God exists and God's provident, which leaves a lot of room for them to believe even those natural truths by a kind of faith, like my six-year-old. The six-year-old has some kind of intuitions that are reasonable and natural, but they're not like a sophisticated metaphysician, and they believe it mostly because people told them through religious traditions still there's some kind of rational content to it. So in other words, the point is supernatural faith can work in a very basic way through these kinds of reasonable structures of openness to something that's a little bit open-ended in us, which is our natural knowledge of God, and our natural knowledge of providence, but taking it beyond that into acts of deep trust in God. And that at least, he thinks, is minimal. Now, of course you say, on the one hand, that seems very generous, isn't it? Maybe almost semi-Pelagian, or Pelagian, because you don't actually have to believe in Christ explicitly. Okay, that's one concern. Another concern though is, isn't that too much? I mean, don't we hold that atheists could in principle possibly be saved? But you're saying they have to believe in God. Ah, that's another good objection. They're not really here, but they're, they're things that come up later in theology. Okay, well, let's keep going. The precepts of the law, which man is bound to fulfill, concern acts of virtue, which are the means of attaining salvation. Now an act of virtue, as stated above, depends on the relation of the habit to its object again two things may be considered in the object of any virtue that which is the proper and direct object and that which is accidental thus it belongs properly to the object of fortitude to face the dangers of death and to charge at the foe with the danger of oneself for the sake of the common good soldiering but that he be armed strike another with his sword and so forth is directly uh, indirectly reduced to the object of fortitude <coughs> Accordingly, just as a virtuous act is required for the fulfillment of a precept, so it's necessary that the virtuous act should terminate in its proper and direct object. But on the other hand, the fulfillment of the precept does not require that a virtuous act should terminate in those things which are accidental. You see where he's going? You have to believe God and believe in God. But all the details of what you believe in relation to God or about God could be things that could become explicit but are only held implicitly. So he says, we must therefore say that the direct object of faith is that whereby a man is made one of the blessed, while the indirect and secondary object contains all, comprises all things delivered by God to us in Holy Writ, for example, that Abraham had two sons. So as regards the primary points or articles of the faith, man is bound to believe them as he's bound to have faith. But as the other points, he's not bound to believe them explicitly, but only implicitly insofar as he's prepared to believe what's contained in the Holy Scriptures. Now, he actually there is saying that the ordinary case is the, belie- is the baptized Catholic believer. And the, in the ordinary case, you say, what is the baptized Catholic believer bound to believe explicitly? The creed, the first principles of the science of theology, the things we confess in the creed. But notice that the first object of belief is I believe in one God who exists and is provident. And there's some ways in which people who came before the time of Christ could, outside of Israel, could have some notion of God and the sacred and of the providence of God, and perhaps grace could have been at work in their lives. Aquinas does talk about this possibility. So he now asks Are all, in Article 6, are all equally bound to have explicit faith? I mean, is everybody in this room under the same conditions? or all people through time in the Catholic Church, or are, are the people of ancient Israel under the same obligations as us? What about the people who came before the people from, or the people who've never heard of Christ, and so forth? I answer that the unfolding of matters of faith is the result of divine revelation for matters of faith that passes natural reason. Now, natural revelation reaches those of lower degrees through those who are over them in a certain order. To men, for example, through the angels, the lower angels through the higher. And in like manner, therefore, the unfolding of faith must needs reach men of lower degree through those of higher degree. So men of higher degree whose business it is to teach others are under obligation to have fuller knowledge of matters of faith and to believe them more explicitly. So for example, bishops have a much greater degree of responsibility for holding to the truth of the Catholic faith than lay people. But intellectuals have their own kind of responsibility to hold to the faith in a fairly explicit way. If that's, you know, they're, I mean, in general though, bishops and priests have a very strong responsibility and take an oath of fidelity, and all religious generally. And those who are in a um, vocation or office wherein they're asked by the church or by God through the church to have a more explicit knowledge of the faith are um, under a particularly distinct responsibility to have a, a developed explicit faith. So for example, I mean, a Dominican, a Jesuit, a person in a religious order that's dedicated to the search for the truth, somebody who's been asked to do that by the church who teaches the pontifical faculty. You know, if somebody, if I teach stuff in a pontifical faculty at Catholic church, that's wrong. I mean, it's a bigger deal than if somebody gets it wrong and is even, is even stubborn about it, who's a lay person who's never studied theology? Because the, there are some people designated to, to transmit the faith to others more especially. Um, and so, like you know, it'd be weird if the priest got angry at the you know pious uh, grandmother who's never studied theology because she didn't have the same views of him who studied more. We, we would never expect that to happen. Article seven: Whether it's necessary for the salvation of all that they should believe explicitly in the mystery of Christ. I answer that the object of faith includes properly and directly the thing through which man obtains beatitude. Now, the mystery of Christ's incarnation and passion is the way that men obtain beatitude. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but what I want to tell you is, he's going to say it's the most central thing which we need to believe in order to come to know the Holy Trinity. Then he goes on to say, people from before the time of Christ in Israel believed in it implicitly because they believed in the sacrifices of ancient Israel, which were instituted by Moses as a foreshadowing of the one saving sacrifice of Christ and his incarnation. So this is back with the idea that ancient Israel has specifically the same faith as us, the ancient Hebrews, Moses and his followers, because they received the, the knowledge of the God of Israel's provident plan to save the world. They believed that the God of Israel existed and had a provident plan to save us And they believed in the rituals and sacraments instituted for our salvation. And in doing so, they implicitly believed in the incarnation that is to come. Now, he talks about the fact that people who might not know even the truths of the, you know, revealed to the people of Israel could receive some kinds of revelations. This is reply objection three. And he gives the example, a very contested example of the Sybil ancient Roman poem that might, might have been Christian, might not have been Christian, which seems to talk about an incarnation. But his point is that um, those who lived outside the covenant of Israel and the church could receive in- spiritual instigations to orient their life towards God and his existence and providence, and so come to be saved by grace in faith. And this raises the question of whether people who come after Christ, who through no fault of their own remain ignorant of him, for sociological reasons or what not, and sincere reasons of conviction of conscience, may still be subject to grace, leading them implicitly toward God. I thought this question was about whether there, there needs to be explicit belief, belief. Yeah. Well, he says for us there does. For us. Okay. it's so not for us. Well, like ancient Israelites don't have to, right? So, so you have sure, Catholics okay. who think like Dave, King David may not have been saved. Aquinas actually thinks King David did have explicit knowledge of the incarnation because he was a major prophet. He thinks Moses, David, Isaiah, these people foresaw the incarnation. So, uh, <coughs> when you say that for us explicit knowledge, who is us? Catholics. People who received the revelation overtly. Overency. And it's possible that Christ thinks everyone who's come after the time of Christ, although the church has since nuanced that because what we've realized is, I mean, a lot of things, I mean, the church never really declared anything on this, but then you had the discovery of the New World and all the people in Africa and, and India and Asia, and Asia and also like uh, especially South America who've never had the opportunity to hear about Christ. So then they started saying, well, there are people who live now who haven't heard the gospel. And God's grace could be at work in them, like He was at work in the pagan peoples, the Gentile peoples before the coming of Christ. And so then there's a question of when might they have a, a k- implicit faith? I mean, can supernatural faith be at work in them, despite the errors of the beliefs in their culture? This is an open question. Could you unpack this very surprising line? He does, however, since the sense man had no foreknowledge of his interest he does, however, seem to have had foreknowledge of the incarnation of Christ, from the fact that he said, wherefore a man shall be father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, of which the Apostle says that this is a great sacrament in Christ's church, and it is incredible that the person was is the sacrament. Let's hold that thought for tomorrow, it's a good question. I mean, the thing is, Aquinas, oh, we'll see tomorrow, Aquinas does think that God did not intend the incarnation, or it seems, doesn't seem that God intended the incarnation as the final purpose of creation, so he became incarnate because of sin. But he does say he revealed it to Adam and Eve even before they fell, though he did not re- reveal them the motive. Mm-hmm. So they knew that the, the incarnation was coming, but they didn't know it was coming because of their own sin. Right. And it raises interesting questions. And they, they knew because... Oh, he thinks he they received revelation. He thinks Adam and Eve received revelation in the garden. Uh, I think I because I thought he was saying it somehow the institution of marriage, which is natural, already conveys that there will be an incarnation. Yeah, he thinks it was supernatural in the garden. The nature was, it was already kind of like a sacrament for Adam and Eve, mm-hmm. yeah. What's the relationship between the sacrament of marriage and the incarnation? Um, <clears throat> I guess in this text. The sacrament, of, well, in the church's teaching, the sacrament of marriage is a symbol of the union of Christ and his bride. And it conveys the grace to the couple to live in the love of Christ for his church, to love each other in Christ, and to be a living image of Christ in the church. And this was already present in Eden, according to Aquinas. Is it necessary for salvation to believe explicitly in the Trinity? Well, he gives you a very simple answer. I answer that it is impossible to believe explicitly in the mystery of Christ without faith in the Trinity since the mystery of Christ includes that the Son of God took flesh, and that he renewed the world through the grace of his Holy Spirit, and again, that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Wherefore, just as before Christ, the mystery of Christ was believed explicitly by the learned, he means like David and Moses and the high prophets, but implicitly and under a veil by the simple, those are the simple Israelites who believed in the Mosaic Revelation. So too it was with the mystery of the Trinity, and consequently, when once, once grace had been revealed, all were bound to explicit faith in the mystery of the Trinity, that's say Christians. And all who are born again in Christ have this bestowed on them by the invocation of the Trinity. Notice again, we go, there's basically three core ideas. God, The one God exists, we must believe in God and His province, God has become man in Christ, and God has revealed to us the Holy Trinity. I can see that there was much discussion in that time. What's the minimum to get saved as there is in our time? Yeah. There's that, but it's not so much for Catholics. They're worried about the historical economy of salvation. I mean, they know that the ancient Jews were saved, could be, could be saved, yeah. even though they didn't have explicit knowledge of Christ. And and then they're worried, rightly, about what happens to the people who came before that time. Did God was God interested in them? And they think that he was. So how did that work? And they look to the Bible for the answer. They look to the you know we, we, there's a book, good book by John Dennyelu, who's a 20th century jesuit called holy pagans it's a very fine book on the fathers of the church wrestling with this issue and he also refers to these texts of aquinas that we're just reading and he shows that they basically look at genesis and they look also at some of the you know holy people like Job, the holy pagan saints of the old testament as read in hebrews 11 which is a kind of recapitulation of the gallery of pagan saints and it shows how the early Christian movement was thinking already about this in the New Testament in, the, in Hebrews 11. What, what are we to say about the grace that was given to those who came from before the time of Christ in Israel? So it is something in the beginning in the New Testament and then you see the fathers of the church thinking about it and then you see the medieval thinking about it. So in a way they're still thinking about the Bible, you know, the internal content and revelation of the Bible. So we have two articles left and I do want to talk about the 10th one especially but we'll we'll talk about the 9th one briefly. It's actually interestingly um, a traditional point of controversy with the Lutheran uh, tradition to some extent. Um, Whether to believe is meritorious, now you could imagine, so the concept of merit is very fundamental in the Catholic tradition, and it, the word in Latin, meritum, doesn't exist in the New Testament in any direct Greek correlate way, okay? It started to be used especially by, I think, Tertullian in the third century and became a typical idea in Western Latin theology, like Augustine and others, um, all the way up to the tradition. There's systematic reflection about in the Middle Ages, what does it mean to merit salvation? Now, Aquinas quite rightly points out that although it doesn't exist in the New Testament as a, a overt word, what does exist is a thematic notion, especially like in the parables of Christ, but also in explicit teachings of Christ and the apostles, of reward corresponding to faith. Because we've had faith, there's a certain fitting reward that is given to us. So it, it, it's very hard to talk about that uh, without some notion of an intrinsic merit. Okay, if that's the case, though... You can see a number of ways this could go wrong. One way it could go wrong is if we think that God gives us grace and then we meritoriously make good use of it just through our natural powers. It's got to be the other way around. God moves us first by the gift of grace and gives us grace as a pure gift, that faith is a pure gift. This is a teaching of the church at the Council of Trent based on Scripture. But then once we're given the grace of faith gratuitously, we also continue to consent to it under the movement of faith in cooperating with faith, and in that we merit now Augustine and Aquinas have a very interesting and very powerful but also some, somehow perplexing idea here that when we merit in faith, the merits themselves are the gift of God first and foremost and the we won't go into here, but if you read the trees on grace, which has already been tre- happened, as it were, in time, so to speak, in the Prima Secunde, the fundamental distinction Augustine makes that everyone follows in the Middle Ages is between operative grace and cooperative grace. Operative grace is God working in me without me taking any initiative, and only God, I'm sort of as we're passively receiving it. And cooperative grace is me being moved by grace to move myself. God's grace is in me, and... It's instigating my cooperation spontaneously and freely and all that. But from within, I'm now working under grace with God. So you can't even cooperate without a new and special grace. Now, Aquinas says justification that occurs through infused faith also requires, and this is a difference from, say, Luther, infused hope and charity that regenerate the will. So it's not that just, I'm, I'm not justified by just But also by hope and love, transforming the will and inclining it to leave behind sin and adhere to God. But that being said, Aquinas does say that the infused habits of faith, hope, and love, received in baptism or in confession of sins, in in um, reconciliation, that the infused habit of faith, hope, and love, habits of faith and love, are operative graces. So they're not something I, first and foremost, like, have to do the right thing to get. God gives them to me gratuitously. And then, because I have faith, hope, and charity, God gives me, as it were, these stable habits and dispositions by which I can fittingly cooperate with him meritoriously. So the merits are themselves gifts. I just want you to all hear that like once, just so. If you want to read more about it, go to Prima Secundae, question 114. You, you know where the Prima Secundae is. We were reading from it yesterday, questions 1 and 2. If you go to 114, you'll read all about merit. If you go to 112, in the school day, you'll read about justification. And so you can get your... Uh, no, no, question 113. Huh? Justification. Justification is 113. Not 109? One no, 109 is the necessity of grace. 110 is the essence of grace. 111 is the division of grace. 112 is the cause of grace. 113 is justification by grace. And 114 is the merits. <laughs> I just taught it many times, that's all. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Article 10. Oh, sorry, let's just read quickly Article 9. Um, Our actions are meritorious insofar as they proceed from the free will moved with grace by God. Therefore, every human act proceeding from the free will, if it is referred to God, can be meritorious. Now, the act of believing is an act of the intellect assenting to the divine truth at the command of the will moved by the grace of God. So that it is subject to the free will in relation to God, and consequently, the act of faith can be meritorious. He doesn't say it always is, but it can be. This is important to remember when you experience um, obscurity of faith. Sometimes, that I mean, Aquinas talks about one of the reasons it's obscure is so that you can grow in meriting. You can merit eternal life. It is the faith can be a trial. It's not always a consolation. But that's actually willed by God or, or as a kind of good thing because it invites us to deepen our love for God and our trust in God as the condition in which we hold the faith. I once heard a priest say, when faith is more obscure, it's an opportunity to deepen love. So you need to work on love, you need to do more work on worshiping God, adoring God, trying to pray to God, contemplate God. The faith is, the French talk about l'éclair obscure de la foi. The Italians talk about the chiaroscuro, the clarity and obscurity of the faith. So when the faith is more obscure, when it's more clear, it can help you grow in love because it irradiates the mind, and it warms the heart and elevates the heart. When it's more obscure, it invites you to a more voluntaristic form of love. I will to believe. I want to be faithful. I want to be close to God. And so your prayer takes on a different shape. Now, you can go through both these states in one day often, but the point is... Um, it's it's, like, it's kind of analogous a visual image to the sun and the rain and the sun and the clouds and the rain you know, there's times when the, the sunlight of faith shines and warms the whole heart and elevates our prayer and there's times when there's the cloud cover and you, you believe there is a sun but all you really do is you feel the darkness or the cold and you have to kind of soldier on and walk through the rain but it's, you're, you're, you're loving God and it's meritorious Article 10 is a great article for theologians and intellectuals more generally, Catholic intellectuals. Whether reasons in support of what we believe lessen the merit of faith? Now, you know, there could be the objection. Well, of course they would, because, like, simple, like we should just have simple faith. God is simple, be simple yourself. Turn your heart toward God, love Him, and believe what He revealed. Okay? On the contrary, it's written, 1 being, being Peter, Peter says, be ready always to satisfy everyone that asks you a reason that faith, hope, and love are in you. For that faith, hope, and love which are in you. Now, the apostle would not give this advice if it would imply a diminution of the merit of faith. So it does not diminish the merit of faith. Basically, he's going to argue here for the, the, the good um, grounds for a studious faith a faith that where you believe but in belief you seek understanding and that's meritorious because that actually means you love God more than if you just ah, I believe you know I don't need to think about it I love God so much I think about it a lot I think about who God is and I think about how to communicate the truth about God to others I answer that as stated above the act of faith can be meritorious insofar as the subject of the will not only as to the use but also as it is subject to the will, not only as to the use, but also to the assent. Now, su- now, human reason in support of what we believe may stand in a twofold relation to the will of the believer. First is preceding the act of the will. For example, when a man either has not the will nor prompt will to believe unless he be moved by human reasons. And in this way, human reason diminishes the merit of faith. Now, that's a certain kind of apologetics not all apologetics, but a certain kind of apologetics is, I'll believe when I think the reasons are sound enough. All right, well, let me give you some sound reasons. Uh, okay, fine. Yeah, it's probably yeah, it's probably better I go to mass. I mean, on the whole, I can take the wager that it's true, given that you've given me some good apologetic arguments. Right, so that's not good that's like you're not believing really you're you're believing to the extent that it seems to pla- that your reason seems placated by moment with regards to the things that you're worried about you might be worried about something else tomorrow or something else the day after in this sense it's been said above that in moral virtues a passion which precedes choice makes the virtuous act less praiseworthy for just as a man ought to perform acts of moral virtue on account of the judgment of his reason not on account of a passion so ought he to believe matters of faith not account on the human reason but on account of his divine authority You know, you really ought to be just in this case because it could probably lead you to a better relationship with that person and maybe a a job promotion. Yeah, you're right. It probably should be just. Those are bad motives. You should be just because it's the reasonable thing to do. Second, human reasons may be consequent to the will of the believer. For when a man's will is ready to believe, he loves the truth he believes. He thinks out and takes to heart whatever reasons he can find in support thereof. But in this way, human reason does not exclude the merit of faith but is a sign of greater merit. There's the key line. It's a sign of greater merit. Because the person loves the truth about God revealed, they seek to understand it, to reason about it, and to explain it, and to explain it to others. Thus again, in moral virtues, a consequent passion is the sign of a more prompt will. Like the guy who's passionate about justice, it's the reasonable thing to do, and he's passionate about it. So he's not just moved by a whimsical passion to be just. He's just, and he's passionate about being just. So I'm not moved just by an apologetic whim. I guess I should go to Mass because my roommate last night gave me the best argument I've ever heard for the idea that there is objective morality, but I'm not really sure. Yeah, maybe, I guess. Two, like, I believe the faith, and now I need to think about the reasons I can give to people for why they should believe there's an objective morality. So it means there's a special kind of actual... Look, there's lots of ways to have a deeply meritorious faith. I mean, the person who shows courage in battle the soldier who's also a Christian soldier and has a you know, believes that this just war here really does have to be undertaken and they find themselves in that fight and they and they, they convey their life to Christ before going into battle, they, they can merit faith, hope and, and faith, hope, and love in a way that the intellectual Catholic sitting in the library can't. Or the person who consecrates their life, body and soul to God in consecrated virginity. Or the person who um, works assiduously in corporeal works of mercy. There's lots of ways we can be sanctified, but one way we can be sanctified is like by consecrating our mind to the love of study of the truth and trying to convey the truth to other people. And as we've seen there's this subordinate this subordination not subalternation, subordination of philosophy to theology. So uh, a person can do this in theology but also through philosophy. Or a person can do this in philosophy really treating topics in philosophy that in the ways that pertain to the study of the philosophical subject matter without, as it were, advancing the issue apologetically always in view of theology, but also showing in reasonable ways how philosophical realism opens our minds to the possibility of divine revelation and possible cooperation with divine revelation. So there's such a thing as a kind of vocation of the Catholic or Christian philosopher, just as there's a vocation of the Christian theologian. They're very different, but they're compatible in fact deeply Interrelated, And they can both be ways that people who studiously seek to show the truth of the faith consecrate their minds to God by either pursuing and expressing, pursuing and communicating theological wisdom or pursuing and communicating philosophical wisdom. And the radiance of the beatific vision will be more intensive for people who love God more. When Aquinas asks, what is it that commands the intensity of the beatific vision for each human being in the world to come? He says it's the intensity of their love for God. And this is because faith and hope are in an imperfect state, but our love actually attains to God in all he is now. And so the more our soul opens to a kind of direct contact with God through charity, the more we open our spirit to a a more radiant and intensive beatification now that can sound like all I should do really is just to grow in love for God through prayer. Well, it is a principal way. But actually our service to God in a whole myriad of ways is the way our will becomes open serving God. And one of those ways is through sacred study because of the more I'm meriting, you know, intense friendship with God in love through sacred study and the communication of the truth, well those aren't quite the same thing but they can be related then the more I'm also opening my heart to the intensity of divine love. And as we've seen, knowledge can lead us to an intensification of love. So the more I study the truth about God, the more I can, in principle, begin to love God. So in terms of that question we talked about with Day Mallow 6, because I love God more intensively and meritoriously, I study God deeply. Or because I study God deeply, the specifications of truth begin to help me love God more intensively. So there's a kind of Virtuous circularity of knowledge and love. Did your earthly father say that the soul can receive the love of God fully, while even in an ungodly earthly state, but not? Because faith is not yet, vi- yeah. Because faith is imperfect, because it's not. Vi- this is Paul. He says, "Now we, we live by faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love." And everybody in the Middle Ages says, "Wisely, the greatest." Well, faith is still not sight, and hope, it, the desire to possess God, is still not possession. But love is really identical with what it will be in heaven. Because the good we love in God, the reality of God we love, the first truth and first goodness we love in God, it's the same we will possess by love in the world to come. But love is also, see, intellect is assimilative. You assimilate the truth of what's outside of you. And love is tendential. You love the reality known. And so the more we love God, the more we grow in love of God in the faith, the more we tend outward into God more intensively. Is to will to love God to love God? Yes. Okay. It can be, yeah. Mm-hmm. Because there's 12 acts of the will, uh, intellect and will in the free act, and we haven't gone into this, but the to the, the will to the command, imperium is one of them. When you imp- when you command yourself to do something out of love of God, you actually effectively actuate latent potencies to love. And sometimes it's a way of moving ourselves towards God with independence from we might say our psychological state of um, our passions, our imagination. Because we get clogged down in like a, all the possibles or the prudential possibles or the imaginative or the you know, fears and other emotions, or acedia and fatigue, we have to just command ourselves to go do something for God. And it's the same way in work ethic, but in terms of your relationship with God, you just sometimes command yourself to do it. And if you can build up a habit of... Com- now, if you, if you get a spirituality that's all about that, you get a kind of military stoic spirituality. But you can't even do that without grace. Yeah, you can't do it without grace. But there's a way of cooperating with grace that then becomes to look very stoic, like it's a very combative spirituality. And so a lot of, I mean, a lot of Spanish spirituality historically it has a strong militant aspect that you do find in the Jesuits. You find it in Opus Dei, and it has, a, it, 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 no, it has a very noble pedigree. It has a noble pedigree, but it, it, it circulates around the effect of grace on the imperium. And it is one of the, one of the moments of the act. That's where um, other spiritualities more focus more on, like, the nourishing of desire like to, and or... Um, Or inner choice that isn't necessarily affection in anything exterior. Or intention, right? So you've got got things like desires, intentions, choices, imperium. So there's different elements of the free act where you can kind of see, you know, you can emphasize. But sometimes, everyone needs to focus on their imperium. Because if you don't, you can't build up the habit of love. I mean, it helps you understand a little bit why there are different points of emphasis in the spiritual tradition.